Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. We want to take a quick moment to let you know about something really new that's cool from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or Google Chrome extension to scan the news, look at any story on any website, and instantly bring up news and information from Bloomberg relevant to what you're reading about. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it means that no matter where you're reading the news, you can basically bring all the data and information that's on the Bloomberg with you. Uh, It's kind of fun to test out, right, Joe? Right. So if you're reading a story about Tesla or Microsoft or Apple or Facebook, you can uh, immediately bring up news and data from Bloomberg. And of course, we have all the news and data in the world. It's really awesome. You should uh, check it out by downloading the iOS app or search the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Yeah, and it's called Lens. We should probably say what it's called, right? <laughs> oh, right, right. It's called Lens. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I'm trying to think, have we ever had a Nobel Prize winner on the show? Can you remember? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think we Why have. Do you ask? Yeah, I don't think we have either. Um, and not to get your hopes up, we don't have one <laughs> um, for this episode either. Oh, but, shoot. Yeah. But Very we, disappointing. <laughs> we do have someone who has a really good shot at eventually um, getting one. We actually have the recent winner of the latest John Bates Clark Medal. It's a medal that's given by the American Economics Association to economists under 40 who make big contributions to the field of economics. Isn't it also true that uh, among economists, the John Bates Clark Medal is actually considered to be more impressive and prestigious than the uh, Nobel Prize? Uh, You're probably right. I mean, statistically, I think 40% of the recipients go on to win a Nobel. And of course, the John Bates one is confined to young economists. So that's pretty impressive. Another thing uh, that sort of will make today's episode distinct is it's kind of timely. So Mm. I kind of like the fact that on our podcast... We usually talk about things that aren't really in the news. We sort of give people a respite from the top stories of the day and just let them explore something completely out there. But this one might actually be a little bit uh, sort of on the news. Yeah. So we are definitely huge fans of financial and markets and economic history. And the guy that won this medal, I should just go ahead and say his name. It's David Donaldson. Uh, He's an associate professor of economics at Stanford. But Professor Donaldson is basically famous for being a sort of trade economic historian. And he's famous for one paper in particular. It's called Railroads of the Raj. And it basically went back and looked at the railway network that was built up by the British uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s in India. And he used that to check what impact building that infrastructure has on trade and general incomes in India. So I mean, imagine putting that paper together, right? It definitely sounds like it would be quite a task. All right. Well, should should we just go ahead and ask him? Let's just, let's bring him in. Mm-hmm. 
David, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys, thanks for having me. You know, we just mentioned probably your most famous paper on Railroads of the Raj, and that was a paper you started, I think, when you were a grad student, um, but you worked on it for years and years and years, and if I'm right, it's it, it still actually hasn't been published. It's still forthcoming, right? Yeah, I've been... I've been very slow uh, in many ways. So, um, but yeah, it's something that uh, you know has occupied my interest for a long time. It, it it struck me as a, you know, among other episodes in world history, one of one of the great episodes that in integrated economies made it easier for one market to trade with another market, uh, and that trade that integration happens obviously internationally. Things like the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal mm. or the invention of the steamship did that across oceans. And then, you know, the railroads sort of did that within countries like India and, of course, famously also the United States. So uh, before we even get to what you did to work on this paper and or even the conclusions, what originally uh, sparked your interest in this particular uh, event from history? Well, actually, I was uh, I was a grad student and I knew I was interested in trade, but I, and I knew I was particularly interested in intranational trade. That is kind of trade across regions of the same country, which has typically always been hard to study just for, for lack of data, basically. When, when goods cross international borders, customs agencies have always taxed that. You know, not always, but for the most part, most countries throughout history have taxed international trade. And so they've kept a record of the flow of international trades. Whereas typically when goods move within countries, they don't get either taxed or, right. or recorded. And so we don't know much about it. Uh, but I was always interested in India and uh, got got wind of the fact that at the time when I was doing my doctoral work, in fact, almost still to this to this day, India ha had had um, sort of domestic tariffs, tariffs on the movement of goods across state boundaries within India. And I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to kind of scope it out. So I went to India for uh, for a couple of weeks one summer and in order to meet with um, people in government, people in academia and, and librarians in order to try to sort of find out the facts. And actually, it was, it was in that process that I, I met, you know, just heard this kind of endless refrain. Well, you know, the thing that really brought India together is was the railroads uh, of sort of about 100 years ago. And that, I guess, piqued my interest. I assumed there would be no data, you know, that the, the, obviously the further you go back in time, that's typically the, the less data that survives. And so I thought, well, I guess I could at least sort of explore what exists in the, in the libraries uh, on, on that historical era. And I, I was just sort of shocked to, to learn what was actually available, you know, um, what they'd recorded back, back then, what they'd published uh, and what still survived. So one thing about the British railway system is it, it's famous for being absolutely massive in India. I mean, hundreds of thousands of miles worth of railway. How, how did you go about collecting that data and then isolating certain effects away from other effects? Because I imagine like if you look at the fact that one railway line has been built between one county and another town or whatever, that's going to have an impact on all sorts of things, right? It's almost like a tree diagram, like the impact just keeps spreading and spreading. So how do you I have so many questions. How do you go about kind of limiting that impact? There's no easy easy way to do that, and I don't claim to have um, necessarily nailed it by any means. Uh, you know, the 
the ideal way to, you know, that any scientist learns about um, the world around us is by something like an experiment, right? Either a formal lab experiment or in less controlled settings where you can't, you know, a lab experiment is just advantageous because you know that you can control everything except the one uh, treatment that you're trying to sort of study the effect of. But sometimes you can sort of make sure that the treatment is randomly assigned. That way you know that on average uh, across the, the, the sort of subjects, if you like, in, in the experiment, those differences will cancel out on average. And so social scientists like me are always, you know, looking for things that, that hopefully, you know, we, we think there's a case to be made for you know, features of, uh, of the way that the, some program was allocated to the world having some quasi sort of random element to them. And of course, we never know if that's actually the case, except in, in rare, rare instances where the social scientist, him or herself, or the policymaker uh, actually explicitly decided to randomize. But that's, of course, extremely rare. Much more likely is the case like the Indian railroads, where they, um, they had a complicated decision process about where and when to, um, to roll out the network. And, and I should say all that is, um, it doesn't even really address the heart of your question, which is that there will be spillovers. You know, that is to say, in a classic uh, lab experiment, you have a treatment group that randomly is chosen to get the drug or something, and the control group is randomly chosen not to. But there's a serious problem if you think that it's possible that your control group is affected sort of, one way to think about it is the very fact that they were the control group means they're affected. The other way to think about it is closer to what you said, which is that some of the treatment spills over onto them. They're sort of partially affected. Even if they weren't directly affected, they were partially affected. Okay, so that's the big backdrop against which um, we tend to think about these things. Um, and, you know, you need you need help from theory. I think it's fair to say that we don't, there's no you know, I, I did, in principle, you could design an experiment that would just kind of uh, completely, ideally nail everything. But in the in the real world, we don't have enough statistical power to to follow all those spillover effects in their kind of manifold directions. As you said, this kind of forking tree just makes it it it's sort of that basically impossible with the kind of data, the kind of world we live in. Um, so you need to, so economists, uh, you know, like, like me, sort of turn to. Um, hopefully fairly uncontroversial notions in economic theory to to help structure those you know what we where we expect to find those spillovers and sort of where therefore to sort of shine the light and and try to see them uh, and another way to say it would be we can sort of structure things so that we know the kinds of places that are likely to have had a full treatment, other places maybe we, we think they, whatever the treatment was, we know that some other place had three quarters of that or half of that or a quarter of that or maybe finally just a place that we're pretty confident would have been almost unaffected by the uh, event. So we're always trying to do that sort of thing and, and um, I guess that's a high level overview of how I thought about the problem. I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about the process. Like, how many times did you have to travel to India? How many libraries did you have to visit? What was it like digging up the archives of all this uh, data that you discovered about the, uh, you know, what specific data you ended up looking at? And then also, you know, what did you discover about the ramifications of the railway buildout? Yeah, I mean, the the process was um, certainly unlike anything I imagined I would end up doing during my PhD. <laughs> um, the first thing is you just have to find out what data exists. So that's um, kind of a scoping project. Uh, 
I, I, this never would have been possible. I lived in London at the time I was doing my PhD at the London School of Economics, and none of this would have been possible if it weren't for the fact that the, the, the main libraries in London actually had as good a collection of kind of official government uh, British Indian publications as did any library in India. Uh, almost better, maybe, because things have been preserved better. Yeah, so I, that, I mean, that made it all sort of possible, uh, given where I was based. And also made it possible because just getting the sort of numbers out of the books was, um, of course, just a huge, a huge project. Um, because obviously, the, I think I, I mean, it's complete back of the envelope calculation, but I once convinced myself there was somewhere between 50 and 100 man, you know, a person years worth of, worth of work involved in typing in the numbers. So I was never going to do it myself. Uh, and so that, but that process, you know, very fortunately, just around the time I was doing this in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, was just when people started talking about business process outsourcing, you know, the ability to hire um, somebody to do a, a fairly low skill task like typing in numbers on a computer terminal far away. If, if you know, if only you can uh, find them, uh, you know, and of course that wasn't hard by that period of, of time and, and pay them. That was also you know, relatively easy once I could raise the money and then finally just get the get the raw materials to them. And I could never send these books. Obviously, they're they're way too big, and 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 they're obviously they're held in libraries. But um, but I was able to organize a team of people to take kind of digital photographs of every page, kind of like scanning, but way faster. You know, scanning is super slow. Um, and, but luckily, digital cameras just became good enough around that time where you know, archive-based historians like me were able to. Um, kind of skip the scanner, skip the photocopier, and just go straight to a good digital camera. Anyway, so I sent, you know, 50,000 JPEGs or something. It took almost half a year just to organize the JPEGs. Sent them to um, a, a number of firms in in India, actually, and uh, and they sent back spreadsheets uh, full of, you know, the, the numbers typed in. Um, you know, the, the, the original publications were kind of too low quality to trust uh, uh, optical, you know, digital character recognition, uh, of, at least at that period of the, that technology. Yeah, so I guess, you know, that that's the, the basic idea of how I and many people like me kind of would convert the, the sort of archival paper records into um, digital machine-readable versions. Um, and then, right, so I guess, you know, there, there were a number of things I looked at. I looked at uh, trade, actual volumes of trade flows. I looked at prices, that is, um, whether there was evidence that... Um, you know, I guess a basic prediction that is that when two markets get connected by uh, via some technology that makes it easier to move something between the markets, then the price of that thing should look more similar. That's often just uh, the basic notion of arbitrage. If the price were different and yet it didn't cost much to move it, you could always just sort of buy in the uh, cheap place and then sell the good at the high at the high price place. So it, we kind of think that if if arbitrage is likely to be like to, likely to happen, and it certainly did in this environment of British India, then we would expect that the railroads should narrow the difference in prices of exactly the same good over, over say, two points in space. And there's a, the, the data was consistent with that, obviously, as well, that as railroads connected places, their prices started to converge. And then finally, I looked at um, the, the kind of consequences for income, uh, as you put it. Uh, the the aggregate, this, this I should stress is sort of aggregate income. Think of kind of like a county uh, or a district, as they were called in British India. We're looking at the just 
this is, this is not individual people. I, I wasn't able to look at inequality or anything important like that. But on aggregate, the sort of the closest notion we could get to sort of GDP uh, of a, of a county kind of went up, and on average went up. And, and you're right because of spillovers and and the fact that everybody's experience was different. These averages can be, of course, a little misleading, but but they represent the average, and the average was an increase of about 18 percent in GDP. Huh. We are going to pause for a short break. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. David, I, I know the um, Railroads of the Raj paper is probably your most famous work, but a lot of people were pointing out when you won the uh, John Bates medal that it was fantastic that you had won it on the 200th anniversary or birthday of the notion of comparative advantage, which is, of course, a big, big deal in economics. And it's basically the idea that people can specialize in one type of industry or production, and then they can trade with other people who are also specialized and everyone can eventually benefit. Walk us through your work when it comes to comparative advantage. What have you been looking at and what have you found? All Everything I've done uh, on comparative advantage, in fact, most of my work really since my doctoral thesis has, has been joint with a guy at MIT named Arnaud Costineau. And, and so we, um, we started thinking about Comparative advantage, and you're right, it was about 200 years ago to this kind of day that uh, David Ricardo really wrote down the first logical argument about why trade between two people or two regions or two countries would, would you know, should benefit both of the, those people in that trade. And, um, and the essence of his argument was just a kind of simple example with two activities. They were cloth and wine in his example, and two countries. These were England and Portugal. And the, the example completely generalizes to as many countries and products as you want, but, but the two-by-two two was the minimum ingredient to kind of see the point. So the, the one kind of catch that Arnaud and I got interested in, and this, this point was well known, but we kind of we were, we were a little bit taken aback when we discovered it for ourselves, was that um, once those two regions are actually trading, you know, suppose you observe them today, suppose you observe England, or even in David Ricardo's time, you observe England and, and Portugal, they're actually trading cloth and wine with each other. Then, you know, according to that very same model in which the, that you're using to explain the trade and to understand the consequences of trade, in that exact same model, um, actually, it would have to be the case that one of, one of the two activities is not being done in one of the two countries, you know, at, at least. That, so as you put it, kind of, there will be specialization. And, and, and that means, you know, in a sense that there's something that somebody's not doing. So I guess it won't surprise you that we kind of predict, you'd expect that England was not producing much or any wine, right? Um, they that was sort of the result of specialization was that England was not producing wine. And the theory tells us that there's good reason for that. It's that England is relatively worse at making wine than they are at making cloth relative to, to Portugal. But the question is, how bad are they at making wine? I and mean, we, we kind of know they're bad, both from introspection and also from the theory. We know that they, they couldn't have been good or else they would have been producing it. But how bad? And, and, so the, and of course, that basic idea pervades all of economic life. I mean, I know I benefit from not doing my own dental work, but how bad would life be if I had to be my own dentist? You know, I, I, 
I don't know, but I know it would be awful. And um, that kind of unknown number, it's not just unknown, it's kind of unknowable, right? I mean, um, it's that, so basically everything I've been working on with comparative advantage with Arnaud has this flavor of um, how could an economist ever hope to know that fourth number in Ricardo's example? That's the basic idea. We got interested in where one could know that in general, that sort of fourth number, or more generally, just how good are regions at doing the things they don't do. And um, the first example that came to our mind was agriculture. We thought that's a case where, you know, um, nowadays regions of, sort of, let's say, Iowa, most, most farms grow either corn or soy or maybe wheat, you know. Other regions of the U.S. do different crops. And, and but so the question again comes up well how bad would, how bad would life be if we didn't sort of outsource all of our specialization all of our output of corn and soy to to the corn and soy belt right i mean what if we had to do it ourselves in say new england or in california or in the the southeast you know we were of course you know since discovered but we deep down weren't too surprised to learn that that there are of course entire scientific fields typically under the name of agronomy where their goal is to in a sense, kind of just try to tell farmers, you know, how, given your soil, given your climate, given everything else about your local environment, how good would you be at growing any of the following kind of list of crops, you know, corn and soy, but also cotton and, and, and wheat and uh, peanuts, you know, and, and it's that advice that agronomists give to farmers that, of course, helps those farmers make the right decision about what to grow. But we, so we sort of, in a sense, kind of downloaded that advice in a, in a data file, you know, the advice from the agronomist, the actual numbers on, you know, if this small parcel of land somewhere in the U.S., divide the U.S. up into about a million small parcels of land, and the agronomist will tell you how good each parcel would be at, a whole, at virtually any crop. And of course, it doesn't mean the agronomists are necessarily right, but they, but they have kind of hundreds of years of their own uh, uh, randomized trials, in a sense, and, and uh, greenhouse trials, et cetera, and all physiological knowledge of how crops work to, in order to build up those numbers. So anyway, so we, we kind of designed a study around that information because we thought it was, it, was, it was the core of the economic notion of comparative advantage was to know things like, you know, how, how, how hard would it be to grow peanuts in Iowa? So we then kind of used that information and filtered it through the last 100 year, 120 years or so of U.S. Um, agricultural history. You know, as the, as the U.S. counties, you know, one, one, one plausible story that we think is consistent with the data is that uh, over the last 130 years or so, we, this study started in 1880, the ability for one county in the U.S. to trade with another county in the U.S. or with, you know, consumers elsewhere in the U.S., like in a big city, uh, that ability to trade, you know, dramatically improved. We had the railroads, we had the interstates, we had, you know, the the, um, the invention of the truck, you know, <laughs> major, uh, major improvements in the ability to trade. And so we wanted to kind of quantify how, how beneficial that, that process was for the U.S. economy as the whole, as a mm. whole. And what the numbers that came out were, were startling to me, at least, the, you know, the U.S. agriculture has been this incredible growth story, right? I mean, in a sense, the fastest product, sustained productivity growth that, that we've experienced in any sector has happened in agriculture over the last hundred years or so. And that's why we can feed you know, the, the nation and beyond with, I, I don't know, I forget the exact number, but something under, uh, under 3% of the workforce. 
And so that dramatic growth in productivity is just amazing. But according to our estimates, about half of it comes from just pure allocative efficiency in the sense of kind of specialization. Places being sort of free as markets are trading, places are free to specialize in what they're good at and not produce what they're bad at. And, and that, that, of course, enhances aggregate productivity. And that, those are the gains from trade. Those are the gains due to comparative advantage at work. That's pretty startling. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, and of course, we want to talk about some uh, current applicability of your research. And obviously, the place you know, I think most people's minds would go is sort of you know some of the trade disputes that the U.S. might soon find itself in. But something else uh, occurred to me that is maybe a little more off the beaten path, but also interesting, which is that India, which you studied, obviously is still dealing with a lot of the same things that you talked about in terms of the diversity of its regions and lack of a completely coherent domestic free trade area. I believe it was sometime last year that the uh, Modi government tried to uh, sort of move forward and pushing through a national sales tax so that there wouldn't be this sort of disparate tax regime across regions. There's also efforts to have this sort of national payment system to harmonize and unify payments. Do you see applicability of your work on India's rail system to some of the big domestic debates happening in Indian policy right now? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I of course, um, you know, it'd be naive to suggest that sort of the it is easy to translate a lesson from one technology, one point in the past, you know, of course, it was a very backward technology. It was this, these trains were slow and, you know, they were the first trains the world has ever seen. So even just for studying trains, they're, they're a misleading uh, piece of evidence. The, the more, you know, versatile and long living, I think, piece of evidence is more to do with, uh, or lesson that we learned from that, that, that kind of work is more just to do with the, um, the overall sense of benefits from trading. You know, if, if you if you do something that allows more trade, the odds are good that people are going to benefit on the whole. The, the, the average kind of the, the total pie will grow, um, and that's the kind of thing I've tried to I've tried to quantify. And I think you know, it's I, I, you know the lesson from that that work I've done, as well as the the huge body of work that I've read uh, that other that I've, other people have done that's built up our knowledge of that. Uh, tends to leave a pretty uh, unequivocal picture that on aggregate those gains can be um, you know ex exist and are there in the data and they're and they're important and they're worth um, they're worth not standing kind of in the way of you know that, so when we when we make it hard for people within the same country to trade with each other we stand in the way of those benefits uh, just when we make it hard for me to do when we make it hard for me to hire a dentist rather than doing my own dental work you know we we stand in the way of gains from trade between me and a dentist thankfully in the U.S. there's not much discussion of intranational. Uh, trade barriers, and in fact, everyone tends to agree that improving infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, would be a good idea. You know, we we don't think it's, you know, we we want to encourage more trade between Colorado and California or uh, Kansas or Connecticut. You know, we 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 think we have a basic instinct that those are things are a good idea, and um, and that's consistent with the evidence that I've seen and that I've worked on myself. And I don't think it needs to be any different internationally. Just kind of turn into your first question about the international trade policy tariffs. There's no good reason to embrace international trade and yet stand in the way of international trade in, in my book, unless one possible reason would be extreme distributional concerns. You know, if you um, I, I've, I've stressed, obviously, the aggregate gains. I, ha I have not, you know, myself worked on the, the distributional consequences, how virtually any change in the economy is very likely to have 
people who were harmed by the change. You know, as Walmart displaced Kmart and as Amazon displaces Walmart, we, people suffer, right? I mean, people who have uh, jobs and, and capital tied up in the, the industry, the firm that's being um, pushed out by competition, they suffer. And, and competition from foreigners is no different. So we need policies that help uh, minimize that suffering, but, but standing in the way of growing the aggregate pie, I don't think is likely to be the best policy solution to those challenges. David, can I ask just one very, very quick follow-up, which is, I mean, given the body of academic research that points out the benefits of trade and the benefits of comparative advantage and specialization, why do you think the notion that trade is a zero-sum game seems to persist in the wider world and in some parts of the world seems to be growing? I think there's two basic answers. One is, um, this is a well-known problem that political scientists have talked about for a long time that whenever you have something that would, you know, as I stress a lot, virtually any change I can think of is going to generate uh, benefits for, you know, some people, maybe everyone and some costs for some people, but sort of trade and many, many other things like it, you know, free markets in general tend to sort of have very concentrated um, costs. When I say concentrated, concentrated on a relatively small chunk of the of the population and very dispersed benefits, right? I mean, think of, think of China, right? They displaced uh, somewhere, you know, relatively, I mean, a huge number of jobs in, in the, in the, in the absolute, but relative to the total population, a relatively small um, percentage of workers, yet virtually all of us every day, you know, consume things that, that, uh, that are cheaper and, and maybe only exist thanks to large foreign manufacturing countries like China. So, so, um, but, you know, I think deep down there's a bit of a sort of incumbent producer bias in our, in our society. You know, the, uh, it's as if, you know, it's as if as a nation we think, it, it, I mean, I don't mean we all, but, but if, you, if you listen to a number of people, you get this impression that we, we're just dying to produce, right? I mean, when, when my wife and I um, trade, you know, when we, when we kind of uh, bargain over who's going to sort of um, cook the food and who's going to mow the lawn, you know, I think we specialize according to comparative advantage. We understand that's in our mutual best interest. We tend not to fight over who gets to do more producing. <laughs> we, you know, the, the debate is more about like, if anything, you know, we'd both rather not produce. But so somehow weirdly at the national level, when it concerns international trade, we, we're, we stress over the fact that there's a trade deficit. You know, that's, of course, like the other people are doing the producing, you know, you know we should in, sort of in some sense embrace that. So I, I, I don't understand how at the micro level people understand that, um, that kind of consuming is, is good and producing is, is costly and, and unpleasant, whereas at the, the macro level, it's sort of the opposite. I, I, I sort of think deep down that might be because um, producers, you know, have a, have a lot of power. Obviously, for an individual firm, they would much rather produce than... Um, the not right. Uh, uh, that's how they make their profits. But at, at an aggregate societal level, we, we should sort of embrace the fact that we can um, consume for less effort, and that's the basic notion of gains from trade. Is just we're more productive. We can get more for less um, for less input. All right, Dave Donaldson, associate economics professor at Stanford and the recent winner of the John Bates Clark Medal Award. Thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Fascinating work. Uh, Can't wait to continue seeing the uh, evolution of what you've done. Really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Well, like I said, thanks again for uh, talking with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, come back when you've won a Nobel Prize. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to jinx it, though. Do my best.
So, Joe, I thought that was fascinating, and it was sort of right in the sweet spot for our Odd Lots podcast because it uses all these historical examples to really illustrate some of the stuff that's going on today, right? Yeah, I love that conversation. Um, I, I think my favorite detail was the idea that the best recorded data on all of this Indian trading and taxes and income levels and weather was what was housed in the UK. And then the ultimate solution to putting that in usable form was to take photographs of all the pieces (laughs) of paper and then email 50,000 JPEGs to people in India, appropriately enough, to then put back into uh, an Excel spreadsheet to be usable for an economist. I mean, it does make you wonder what other academic research could be enabled by new technology relatively soon based on old data. And I, I think we've had similar discussions about this before, at least I think I did with Sid Verma and Simon Henriksen. The other thing yeah. that I thought was really interesting uh, was some of the stuff he was saying about the way we trade within countries versus the way we trade internationally. And it does seem to be that trading with our neighbors within a country, with the exception of India, um, just seems to be much more palatable to us than trading with other people outside of the country, which I assume speaks to human nature a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think this does really get to questions of nationhood so that if we see, you know, there even just sort of domestically within this country, we have uh, some places that have done very well, Mm. like the coastal areas, San Francisco, New York, some places that have done really poorly. And we it doesn't really, you know, for the most part, intranational gains from trade don't seem to get people anxious. They're just sort of winners and losers. But then the idea that you know, if we expanded beyond the borders and some countries doing well or and the perception that parts of this country are losing out in that trade, then that really sort of uh, you know strikes a deep chord with people and gives them anxiety. I don't think there's any obvious way to resolve that. I think the sort of purely academic way uh, perhaps still doesn't sit right with people. And obviously we see that playing politically, but it is a really interesting comparison. All right. Shall we call it a day? Let's do it. Cool. All right. This has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Follow me on Twitter at The Staller. And also, Tracy, I realize we never, unlike some other podcasts, uh, thank our awesome producer. So I think we should start doing that. Maybe we're just ungrateful. I think we're, it's it's just, I realized other people do that. We've never been doing it. We've been doing this podcast for a long time. So I say we change uh, the tradition. Uh, We want to thank our awesome producers, Sarah Patterson, who is on Twitter at at Sarah Pat with two T's, and the head of podcasts, Alec McKay. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.